Now we're in journey through Genesis. This is part 16. So invite somebody out. That's my deal. Don't be spooked out by it. Be excited by it. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be a, a great time of refocusing on the Lord. So journey through Genesis. This is part 16. We're in Genesis 19. And this will be part one tonight. So I want to say a prayer and then jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for meeting us here tonight, Lord, with your Holy Spirit, your holy presence. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts through these wonderful passages in Genesis. And I pray, God, that you would give us direction, revelation, speak to us right where we are. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. Now, we saw that in the Old Covenant, generally speaking, um, not for adult proselytes to Judaism, because people could convert to Judaism, but primarily for the ethnic Jews, those born into the house of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In that old covenant, we looked at this, you were born and then you were instructed about the faith. Then you believed, then you obeyed. So birth preceded faith in the old covenant. This is a little review. But in the new covenant, it's different. You were taught before you were born again. The language born again is Jesus' language. You believe before you are born again. You obey before you are born again. And this is a very, very big deal uh, because Reformed theology from Luther, Calvin, and the likes, leaning hard on Augustine and others, follows that Old Testament model. In other words, much of modern Christendom follows that Old Testament model. As John Gerstner so simply and aptly instructed R.C. Sproul, these are big names in theology world, he said, regeneration precedes faith. He was speaking of the New Testament. In other words, you're born again, and then you come into the faith meaning God unilaterally uh, brings you from death to life, and then you begin to learn about the faith. But that, my friends, I stubbornly disagree with. That is not correct. That is Old Testament, and what we're dealing with is the New Testament. That's why the Bible says, and this is a little review, but it's important, that the New Covenant, in the New Covenant, the Bible says, no man will need to be taught by his neighbor saying, no, you're God. Because everyone from the least to the greatest will know him. Now, how is that even possible? Because in the new covenant, you know first. Then you were born again. That's what freaked out Nicodemus in John 3 when Jesus was saying to him, you have to be born again. John chapter 1, the, 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 the writer says that those who are born not of flesh or of the will of man but of God. It's the idea of being born again in the New Testament, not being an ethnic Jew, but being born of water and the Spirit. Now, I'm just going to tell you that is foundational. That is pivotable. Uh, pivotable. That is pivotal. That is game changing. That is solid. That is life giving. That is liberating theology, y'all. I don't know if you know how good that is right there that I'm telling you. You study it out, you research it. That's good stuff. 
Now, we, we also looked at how Abraham was called the friend of God. That doesn't mean they were buddies. That means they were partners by way of covenant. So God began to reveal his intimate plans and purposes to his friend. Years ago, at a strange time in our lives, we got some great advice from Pastor and Sister Donna, the Marcellis, and uh, they gave us this advice. It sounds a little, it sounds a little discriminating, and I guess it is in a way. But they gave us some advice, and it went like this: There's nothing wrong with categorizing your friends. Because if you'll do so, you'll look around, you'll find some friends are really, they're just acquaintances. They don't have your heart. They don't know your heart. And there are some who are friends, but there are some who are closer than others. And then there are a few who are your best friends. And they taught us, you know how you figure out who your best friends are? When the chips are down, when everything's going against you, Take a look around. Who's still with you? That's your friends. That's who you invest your heart into. That's who you go out of your way to make time for. Am I right? We learned that. It, it, was, a, it was a difficult lesson to learn, but it was, a, it was a very healthy thing to learn as well. God was Abraham's covenant friend. This was sworn allegiance. Abraham... No matter what you do or don't do, I've got your back. I love you. The, the Hebrew is hasid. The Greek is agape. It's, it's unmerited, undeserved, covenantial, unilateral, loyalty. It's love. And so God began to reveal to Abraham his plan. And we're going to pick that up in Genesis 19. So, starting with verse 1. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. In the previous chapter, the Lord said, I'm going to destroy Sodom. And this begins that process. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face toward the ground and said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house. Spend the night, wash your feet, that you may rise early and be on your way. They said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Let me stop right there. This is fascinating to me. He baked unleavened bread for them. He made them a kosher meal, unlike his father-in-law, Abraham, who had made cows and, and uh, you know, steak and milk, which was not kosher. We looked at that last time. So he, he makes this meal for them. I want to pay some careful attention to these, these words in what we just read. The, the fact that Lot was sitting in the gate means that he was an official now in the city of Sodom. He had started out just facing Sodom. Then he moved into the city. Then he became a leader in it. I came across this little jewel in my research. There were six steps to Sodom for Lot. Number one, he got into strife 
in Genesis 13. He and his people were fighting with Uncle Abraham and his people over the, the, the fields and the sheep. So he got into strife, conflict. Second thing, desire. This is Genesis 13, 10. He wanted the land of the well-watered plains. It, it said that it looked like Eden, like the garden of God to him. This was a materialism that, that was in Lot. So he was in strife. He had desire. Number three, he chose to move into the vicinity of Sodom. In other words, he willingly ignored the warning signs and he got near. Number four, he faced Sodom. He faced his tents and his life towards Sodom. He was intrigued by it. Number five, he moved to Sodom, Genesis 14, 12. He ended up living somewhere he thought he never would. But there was a lot to gain socially and economically for him not to move. There was too much for him not to move. He saw him missing opportunities. Number six, he became an official in Sodom, 19.1. The position of sitting in the gate was reserved for elders, judges. It denoted a position of prominence and esteem. After experiencing the wickedness of his Sodomite neighbors, Lot chooses not to leave the city, but to try to reform it. So he compromises a lot, but he stays, he moves up in office. It affects him. Let me just say this. Be careful where you look. We used to sing the song in Sunday school. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. The direction you face, the way that you look, is the way that you will go. You know, I, I tell young people this, you know, what where you're where you're looking, if you're looking to the world, if you're looking to the stars of the world, to Hollywood, to Nashville, wherever you're looking, if you're looking to this world, if you're looking that direction, you're going to move <laughs> in that direction. You try that with driving. You drive. You start looking to the right. What do you do? You start drifting to the right. You look to the left, you start drifting to the left. You move in the direction that you're looking. So be careful in, in the direction that you face. Lot was not very careful in the direction that he faced. Now, 2 Peter 2.7 says that Lot was a righteous man, but he was vexed in his spirit by the wickedness of his city. So even though he was a righteous man who was struggling, the sad fact is that he lost his family to the spirit of Sodom. Mrs. Lot, as we will see, was lost, and the girls were all gone. They were checked out. They are not considered to be righteous, only Lot. Lot recognized, now this is interesting, Lot recognized these men that came into the city to be angels, and he made them a feast, and it was kosher. So he knew, again, I don't know how he knew. I don't know if they were, you know, glowing, some kind of twinkle in their eye. Wings, like, I don't know. But they looked like men, but he knew they were angels, and and so he recognized that. He recognized that. Uh, look at verses 4 through 11. Are you ready for this? We're fixing to talk about Sodom. Uh, verses 4 through <clears throat> 11. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house 
And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. Verse 6, So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, this is unthinkable, unimaginable. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish, only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands, that would be the angels, and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door and struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness. Now, wow, we've seen this trick before in the book of Acts. We've seen this in other places. Struck them with blindness and both small and great so that they became weary trying to find the door. Wow. So the angels come into the city. Talk about new kids on the block. I mean, Lot knew it was dangerous. It's not safe for these men to spend the night in the square, not in this city. You know what it's like when you're in a city, a strange city. It's the middle of the night, and you you understand this is not a safe place. We need to scurry along. Come on, kids. Come on, Mama. We got to get out of here. Well, Lot understands in his own city, it's not safe for them to be there. And so they attack his house wanting these angels. It says, so that we may know them carnally. It's unimaginable. Sodom had been messing with Lot's mind. Look at what he's trying to do. He's he's trying to do the right thing, but he's also trying to do the wrong thing. He was making some stupid decisions. Are you with me? Now, I want to deal with the sin of Sodom. I'm going to take my time. I want to deal with the sin of Sodom. Modern biblical scholarship downplays the homosexual aspect of of Sodom. Some scholarship in the modern era dismisses it altogether. John Boswell, a Yale historian, Yale University, points out four possibilities regarding why God destroyed Sodom. He cites, number one, general wickedness. They just bad people, you know, they just bad people. Number two, the men of the city tried to rape the angels. Number three, the men of the city tried to engage in sexual relations with the angels. Number four, the men of the city were inhospitable to the angels. Boswell, this Yale historian, contends that it was either because the men of Sodom wanted to rape the angels, not having consensual relations, 
or because they were inhospitable to them. That's his scholarly conclusion. I don't know if you caught what I just said, but let me just say this. My reaction when I read that was, are you kidding me? Boswell can't even imagine that it was because of the perversity and the homosexuality of the city. He, he is, he, he's blinded to that, but that is kind of where he's coming from, modern Yale University, which made me dig around a little bit regarding Yale. The original Yale University was nothing like this. I find this interesting. An article in Christianity.com by Dan Graves is entitled, Yale Founded to Fight Liberalism. Listen to this. Yale University was founded October 16, 1701, so 316 years ago, almost to the day, by Congregationalist ministers unhappy with the growing liberalism at Harvard 316 years ago liberalism. It wasn't called Yale then. It was called the collegiate school. Ministers donated 40 books and declared their objective that youth may be instructed in the arts and sciences who through the blessing of God may be fitted for public employment both in church and civil state. The huge campus, Graves goes on, the huge campus of today with over 100 buildings was not conceived. In fact, the first classes were held in the residence of Reverend Abraham Pearson. It's got to be kin to you, Kelly, somewhere way back there. Its first rector. Not only 1745 was the school moved to New Haven and renamed, uh, not until 1745 was the school moved to New Haven, Connecticut, and renamed Yale. The name change was in honor of Elihu Yale, a successful merchant who made a donation of goods valued at $2,800. This was equivalent to the annual income of about 14 medical doctors. All of you in the medical field, think about that. This was, uh, the, the purpose of the renamed school was, quote, to plant and under ye divine blessing to propagate in this wilderness the blessed reformed Protestant religion in ye purity of its order and worship. Talk about a mission statement, right? Students were required to live religious, godly, and blameless lives according to the rules of God's Word, diligently reading the Holy Scriptures, the fountain of light and truth, and constantly attend upon all the duties of religion, both in public and secret. Prayer was a requirement. Furthermore, every student was instructed to consider the main end of his study, to wit, to know God in Jesus Christ and to lead a godly, sober life. For many years, these high ideals were followed. One faculty member wrote around 1800, It would delight your heart to see how the trophies of the cross are multiplied in this institution. Yale College is a little temple. Prayer and praise seem to be the delight of the greater part of the students. But fathers cannot ensure the fidelity of their sons. Today, Yale's, Graves said, Yale's original ideals have faded. The school is a liberal institution with utterances and actions that are politically correct. One suspects that students are less likely to pray persistently 
than to engage in political protests. I'm not here to bash Yale, but I do want to drive home this point. When I worked for the Episcopal Church many years ago, my priest, my employer, was a Yale graduate. And he was a friend with Gene Robinson. You can look him up on Wikipedia. He was the first openly gay bishop of the Episcopal Church USA in New Hampshire. To work for this Episcopal Church and under the auspices of this particular priest, I was required, listen to this, to sign a document that said while I was on Episcopal Church property, I would not speak against homosexuality or abortion seeing as that they were political and not moral issues. What's fascinating and ironic about this is this same priest who I work for, a Yale graduate, fought to save turtles on some acreage next to the church and refused to kill gigantic black snakes that infested the church. He preferred to catch and release. My thoughts were, I wish he had the same affection for babies that he had for turtles. Hello. And snakes. I mean, why don't you do some catch and release via adoption instead of killing them, slaughtering them in their mother's wombs? And I'm just being honest with you, okay? This is controversial tonight. I'm I'm all about bringing the hope of Jesus, and and I, I love everybody. But, I mean, we have to go where the text takes us, and we are now dealing with Sodom and Gomorrah. But that little story, the Yale history, kind of sets the stage, shows us the state, not just of Yale or the Episcopal Church USA, but of the state of American Christianity and the state of the American pulpit, weak spineless, shallow, fearful, and extremely carnal. Now, apostles Peter and Paul, along with Jesus' half-brother Jude, had a few things to say about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. They are not graduates of Yale, I might add. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness. Are you with me? Are you sure you're with me? To be reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example 
to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered a righteous lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under, under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. I want you to notice the context here. He, he pulls together the angels of Genesis 6, Noah and the flood, and then Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, listen, in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For the reason God gave them, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions, vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in them the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent. He goes on and on. Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse 5, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness for the judgment of the great day, as... Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. 
So let's talk a little bit about the sin of Sodom. Now, <clears throat> there is a divine order. We had a conversation about this today. There is a divine order in the way that God runs the physical universe. You can see this in the macro, the big picture, like the earth, moon, planets, solar system, stars, galaxies, the inner working of gravity and mass, matter and energy, time and space. And you can also see order in the micro, the small, like cells, molecules, atoms, neutrons, protons, electrons, quarks, neutrinos, whatever those are, subatomic particles, plasma. There's an order. God is a God of order. We could say of law. In Christianity, we're big on slamming law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. But let's just look at order as another way of saying law because we still have the law of gravity, do we not? And if you jump off a building, you can say, I'm not under law but under grace. But what's going to happen? You're going down like a bullet. You're going to fall to the ground because God is a God of law and order. And when we cooperate with God's law and submit to his order, our lives are better off. There is blessing. Just by playing by the rules, there are certain things that come your way that are nice and good and pleasant. Common graces, the reformers would call them. And I just, I'm just talking to you. Heart to heart tonight. Gender distinction is one of those rules God designed. And the world that we live in is trying to throw away those rules or at least rewrite them. Got a call this week from somebody in our church. They were dealing with their child at the doctor's office, little bitty baby. And the doctor wanted to know, how do you identify your child? What gender? Are you kidding me? She is a girl. We just wanted to know, how do you choose to identify your child? Now, I am not a scientist, a philosopher, an anthropologist. I'm just an old country preacher. But folks... Common sense is not such a bad thing. Some of this is just common sense, but there is word to undergird this common sense. Now, I was reading something on Quora.com. Nadia Nongzai wrote, quote, Sex is a biological concept, male or female. Gender is a social construct, man or woman. From this idea, this concept, coupled with the depravity of man, you've got stories like the one in abcnews.com published February 13, 2014, Listen to this. I don't mean to read so much to you. I'm just on controversial stuff, so I thought I'd throw some stuff out here that I could read. Russell Goldman says, 
Facebook introduced dozens of options for users to identify their gender today. And although the social media giant said it would not be releasing a comprehensive list, ABC News has found at least 58 so far. Previously, users had to identify themselves as male or female. They were also given the option of not answering or keeping their gender private. Users can now select a custom gender option. There's going to be a lot of people for whom this is going to mean nothing, but for the few it does impact, it means the world. Facebook software engineer Briel Harrison told the Associated Press, Harrison, who also worked on the project, is in the process of gender transition from male to female. Facebook will also allow users to select between three pronouns, him, her, or their. The following are the 58 gender options identified by ABC News. Let me just go ahead and say this. Now there are 63. Listen to this. I'll just give you some. A, a gender, androgene or androgene, androgyna, androgynous, bigender, uh, size, size gender or cis, cisgender, cis female, cis male, cis man, cis woman, cisgender, cisgender female, cisgender male, cisgender man, cisgender woman, female to male, F to M. Gender fluid, gender nonconforming, gender questioning, gender variant. Uh, folks, 63 more. Trans woman, trans feminine, transgender, transgender female, transgender male, etc. Transsexual, transsexual female, etc. And the last one is two spirit. Two spirit. Now, listen, <clears throat> I'm not against people. And I am not degrading or making fun. God loves homosexual people, transgender people, and anybody who identifies as any one of these or any number of these. But please allow me to say a few things. And I feel like a dinosaur sometimes. I feel like a relic for saying some of the things that I'm going to say. But I believe what I'm saying is rooted in the Word of God, which never ever changes, never, ever changes. You know, in the beginning, he made male and female, man and woman, call it what you want, call it sex, call it gender, but there is, there is the book of Genesis we have to contend with. There is the concepts of God that never change versus the ever-changing concepts of man. 2 to 5 to 8 to 58 to 63. It'll be 163 before it's over. Culturally, oh, I'm running out of time. Man, it's just getting so good right now. Culturally, men and women used to be distinct in their roles, responsibilities, expectations, even down to the way they looked and dressed. Well, it's quiet in here. In America, men worked. Women stayed at home, worked at home, raised kids. Am I right or am I wrong? I mean, that's, that's stories I've heard. <clears throat> and and even the way they dress. Let me say this. 
in the early days of America, men wore pants. You know the statement. Who wears the pants in that family? Where did that come from? Because men wore pants and women wore dresses, skirts, robes, whatever, you know. There was a distinction. It was no big deal. It's just the way it was. It was normal at the time. And there's still evidence of that old era, like like fossils, like archaeologists digging through the dirt and coming across a You can find fossils of this era on any bathroom door that's public in America because you see a man and you see a woman. You don't see a cisgender. Am am I right? Now, Now, these things are being fought violently against these old school concepts, bathrooms, and, and, and you know that even in our public schools. And thank God for our teachers and thank God for our school administrators, but there is a tide that has risen that is powerful. Let me tell you this, and, and Miss Marion wanted me to pray. They lost uh, five uh, people connected to them while they were on their vacation, just died. But this one in particular really shook up Miss Marion. You need to lift her up in prayer. But listen to this. Uh, Two sisters that were friends of hers, 67 years old, twin sisters, were on vacation in Cabo, Mexico. They were walking down the beach, and a killer rogue wave (laughs) washed up, pulled them out, and both sisters drowned. Friends of Miss Marion. Have you ever heard of anything like that? What a nightmare. Not just, and, and in Cabo, Mexico, that's, there's been over 150 people die by road killer waves. Do not go walking on the beach in Cabo, Mexico. But they were walked, twins came into this world together, left this world together. Just a very sad story. There is a rogue killer wave that is sweeping across our land and sweeping all of quote-unquote, traditional family values out to the sea and, sh- and shifting and changing everything. And, and the more this, listen, and i got to stop. I've got more to say. But, but here's the bottom line. It, these, are, these are challenging times. These are dark times. But the darker the night, the brighter the light shines, right? I mean, if, if if there seems to be no distinction uh, in Egypt, then over here in Goshen, there's going to be a major distinction. And, and where they've let go of everything, when the church holds on to the word and the truth, and that's something we've got to make our minds up. I'm not changing to please this fallen, messed up sewage out here. I am going to stick to the word and trust my God. Some trust in chariots. Summon horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And when all hell breaks loose and when the whole world shifts, the church stands strong and says, listen, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I'm not shifting, I'm not moving, I'm not changing. 
And the problem has been that the church has shifted and changed so much, we've lost our punch and our effectiveness. The, the, the church looks just like the world. There's no distinction. The Lord told me a long time ago when I was church planning, and maybe I need to be reminded of this, but the Lord told me a long time, I was up in the mid-Atlantic, up there working with the Episcopals and planning a church and, and struggling and working to, to do what I do. And the Lord told me, he said, Donovan, don't be afraid of the distinctives. The distinctives are the reason that you exist. And I feel so much pressure, you know, I'm like, but we're a little bit different, you know, like, and, and, and I don't want to be different. I want to grow. I want to grow. I do want to grow, but I don't want to. I don't want to compromise my core to grow a church. Hey, I want to speak the truth. If it fills the room or if it empties the room, my job, my responsibility is to preach the uncompromised word of God and let the chips fall where they may. Amen. Won't you stand with me right now? Won't you stand with me right now? Just. We haven't gotten very far at all. Um, I, I want to deal with it. Um, I want to deal with it. Let, let me read a, a scripture uh, because this is so powerful. We're going to deal some more with this the sin of Sodom. We're going to deal with it. Uh, but the apostles, listen, what we're dealing with in modern America, that this was... We see it as like, oh, this is, what a, what a difficult time. It's nothing new. It's nothing new. Do you know Nero married? We get all, you know, I'll, I'll never forget when same-sex marriage was becoming the law of the land. And I just kind of had this epiphany, like Rumpelstiltskin, you know. I, is it Rumpelstiltskin? No, that's the wrong guy. Rip Van Winkle, that's the guy. I was Rip Van Winkle, and I was like asleep for 100 years and woke up, and I'm like, what? I missed something. What What just happened? And I was trying to wrap my mind, my, my 48-year-old mind around it, just being honest with you. Never saw that coming. I don't know what was wrong with me, but I kind of had this epiphany, this awakening, like, holy cow. Like, the America I knew is not the America I now know. It's not the America my children and my grandchildren will know. Things are changing and things are shifting. And, oh, man, I was, I was shaken up about it. But I realized this is nothing new. The church was born in the belly of the beast in the Roman Empire. Nero, Nero, the emperor in Paul's day, married a man and married a woman. I mean, I don't know if he married, you know, the 63 other genders or whatever. But he married a woman. He married a man. I guess, you know, like whatever floats your boat, Nero. And, and ended up being an arch enemy to Christianity. Something went, he was fine and dandy. Something went wrong. The guy went nuts. Marries a man, marries a woman, starts killing everything in sight. Gets Paul beheaded, etc. Like vicious enemy to the kingdom of God. But you know what happened to the church? It grew and grew and multiplied and grew and spread. And there were those in Caesar's household who believed the message of Jesus. And it grew and grew and grew. And I'm telling you, this world is not going to get any better. 
This world, if you believe anything about Bible prophecy, is going to get worse and worse. Evil men will wax worse and worse. The love of many will grow cold as, as the day of the coming of the Lord approaches. But listen, they that know their God will be strong and do great exploits. This is our day, baby. I'm telling you, get all in. Put all the chips in, man. This is the time. Get off your keister. Get your hands in the air. Start loving on Jesus. Tell somebody about the love of God because God's going to do some great things. Amen. Can you lift your hands to him right now? Father, we love you so much. We give you praise. You are able, you are worthy, Lord, to do great things. Hallelujah. I pray that you would challenge and awaken us as Christians, Father. Awaken your church, not to compromise, not to back down. Lord, we've been brought out of darkness into this marvelous light. Sinners just sin because they're sinners, God. We've been brought all out of that, Lord. We know better. We can tell them about Jesus. We can tell them about your love, Lord. And you can do great, great things in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah.